Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Good afternoon, everyone. Many of you know that I was born and raised in Indonesia. And uh, some of you are familiar that in Indonesia, um, it's quite well known among the authorities that it's corrupt. And uh, not long after I had first received my driver's license, uh, it was late one night, I was taking my date home, and I made a wrong turn. And guess what? There was a policeman right there, almost as if they had been waiting for someone to make a wrong turn. Well, of course, I... uh, responded to the officer respectfully, and uh, he told me in Indonesian, of course, his conversation went on that I had violated one of the rules. Um, And then he tried to convince me that it would be easier if I simply paid the fine to him rather than him having to issue a ticket. Well, uh, I decided I wouldn't pay him what I would call a bribe, and instead I insisted that he should fill out the ticket for me. After much discussion, I convinced him, and he took out his notepad and was about to begin to write. And then he paused, and then he said, uh, you know, I can either write out this ticket or um, we need to take you to the local headquarters. I said, well, it is late in the evening, and it is inconvenient. I still have to take my date home, Uh, but go ahead. Let's go to your local headquarters then. I come to find out that the reason I had to go to the local headquarters was because he had never learned how to fill out one of these forms. And it was his superior then that had to fill out the form, and then I, had, I received it, and I said, thank you very much. And then I had to go somewhere within a couple of weeks and pay the fine. It was rather inconvenient. Uh, it took me half a day in line and uh, paying the fine, but I paid the official fine, and of course I felt great that I had not paid the bribe. Now, my mother, on the other hand. Now, don't jump to any conclusions yet. Okay, I know what you're thinking, but don't think such things about my mother. When she was stopped by the police, and it was also an area that they had been waiting because they had changed the direction of traffic a couple of times, and, uh, and they stopped her as well, and like with me, they tried to get her to pay the fine to them. Um, and uh, my mother was sharp. She uh, remembered it was the fasting month for the Muslims there. And she reminded the officer, well, sir, um, isn't it the fasting month now? Wouldn't it be a sin if you uh, were to accept a bribe? And the policeman said, okay, just go, just go, just go. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, we laugh as though it's quite common for people to kind of separate their faith with real life. And uh, Christians sometimes see their faith as only a Sunday standard. On Sundays, I'm a Christian, and the rest of the week, well, I do what I have to do to work and to uh, earn my money and uh, live life. Well, if you look at your faith as something that you practice every day of the week, then we have to ask, how do we practice a Christian work ethic? Now, I know many Christians, for them, they're work ethic is really try to stay as busy as possible. You know, you'd think that it was a biblical mandate that busyness is next to godliness. Uh, But it's not. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nor is God helps those who stress themselves. Uh, That isn't in the Scriptures either. Uh, We do know that idle hands are the devil's workshop. uh, But busy people 
or people who are too busy are the devil's easy targets. Is it any wonder that the book that our life group, the men's life group is going through currently and the women's life group has gone through before on discipleship, a book called The Good and Beautiful God, that one of the very, in fact, the very first assignment after the first chapter, uh, the author encourages the reader to sleep more. Because frankly enough, we do tend to get too busy. He says the number one enemy of Christian spiritual formation today is exhaustion. We are living beyond our means, both financially and physically. And as a result, one of the primary activities of human life is being neglected, sleep. In other words, we haven't learned to rest. And as the author says, if we neglect our bodies, we will also hinder spiritual growth. And it is a truth we need to embrace. Now for others, their problem is just the opposite. They can't get themselves out of bed to get to work. Preferring to be idle or slacking off or waiting for opportunities to come calling, they tend to become a burden to others. And again, we can apply a biblical principle. The Apostle Paul himself said, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. And he commanded and urged the Christians in Thessalonica, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, settle down and earn the bread they eat. In other words, no loaves for the loafers. Now, there is a proper place for rest, and there is much biblical instruction to rest. And last week, we looked very closely in this issue of discipleship at an area that affects every interaction we have with people. We talked about loving your neighbor and loving your enemies. And I hope that this last week you had plenty of applications as you thought about those people around you, those that you know by face and by name, and also those you have never met. You don't know their names and faces, and yet you're called to love them. And this week, today, We'll look at an area of our daily lives where so much of the biblical truth that's in the Scriptures can be applied each day, as each of us have some kind of cycle between work and rest. The disciple of Jesus will live out his faith through his work and through his rest, and he exercises his or her faith by keeping the right work and rest balance. So I invite you, first of all, today that let's explore the Christian disciples' work ethic, and then we'll look at the Christian disciples' rest ethic. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the very first page. Go past the certificates and the marriages and the deaths that you uh, have on the, in the Bible, past the title page and the table of contents to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, for us to see that the God we serve is a working God. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first reference to the God of the Bible is the fact that He created. He was active. And then it begins to account for the order in which the things that were made were made. And when this account finishes in chapter 2, you can turn there, it begins with the summary that thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, He rested from all the work of creating 
that he had done. So this balance of work and rest is modeled by our Creator. And you and I should see our work ethic and our rest ethic as an opportunity for us to glorify God, to demonstrate to the world who God is, because we show ourselves to be His people by the way that we conduct ourselves in our work and in the way that we prioritize our rest. Now, let's be straight. God's activity did not end after those six days. Jesus himself affirmed, my father is always at his work to this very day, and so I too am working. But there is evidently a a difference for us to discern between resting from his work of creation and the ongoing activity that God continually engages in. Now, the law that God gave the Israelites instructed them, and I quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, he says, honor the Sabbath the rest day. It's an instruction that says, in six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then that reason for that work and rest balance is because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh day. Now I want you to also see that the Lord God expects mankind to work. Going back to Genesis chapter 2, a few more verses later, in verse 15, after the Lord had created Adam, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what with it? To work it and take care of it. And then, later on, Eve was created, and it says, that she was to be his helper suitable for him. So working in the Garden of Eden and taking care of it was a task given to man and shared by his suitable helper. Now we need to uh, apply biblical principles to our work ethic. We know that God is a working God and that he created man and gave man a task of working. But then there are several biblical principles that we can gather from the wisdom books regarding the work that we engage in. First of all, let me give you an example from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. In it, we are encouraged to work hard. Proverbs 14, 23 says, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Secondly, from Proverbs 18, verse 9, we're discouraged from slacking. Because Proverbs 18.9 says, One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Thirdly, we're also encouraged to utilize our skills to their greatest potential. Proverbs 22 verse 29 says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. Fourthly, we are discouraged from desiring only to achieve wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And a fifth example of a biblical principle is we're instructed not to steal from others and instead to work ourselves so that we can be in a position to help others. Ephesians 4 verse 28 says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, we can also just incidentally gather 
why, even though the Bible says not much about gambling, that most of the gambling that happens is a violation of any one of those principles I've just read. Think about the motive for gambling. Isn't it always to get rich quickly? That goes against biblical principles. Think about the attraction of gambling. It's the fact that such riches are obtained with very little work. And think about the method of gambling. It usually requires very few skills. Now, someone might argue, you know, putting on a good poker face is a really good skill. Well, I would disagree. Because the win still heavily depends on the luck of the draw. Autocorrected depends heavily on the luck of the draw. Somehow it autocorrected. But it really depends heavily on the luck of the draw. So now while we can gather the biblical principles of diligence and industriousness, those are the way that we should apply our work and avoid this uh, attraction to gambling just to get rich quickly, we can also apply much of other scriptural teaching to our workplaces. And here's a few examples as well. Take honesty and integrity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. In biblical times, in the Old Testament, when people would deal with each other, sometimes they would have differing weights and measures one that, would use, that they would use in the marketplace and one they would keep at home. And the law specifically says you must have accurate and honest weights and measures because one of the things that the Lord your God detests is anyone who deals dishonestly. How can we apply that today? Well, a couple of examples. Don't expense your personal expenses on your company's account. Or don't lie about the product that you're selling. Or don't fudge on your timesheet. See how these are biblical principles for us to be godly in the workplace. You know, the only reason there's auditors around is to check that people are giving an honest account of their income and their spending. And auditors are also necessary for investors to be confident that the financial reports of these business accounts accurately reflect the company's health. So in a perfect world, you shouldn't need auditors. Now, funnily enough, I went from the business of accounting to now trying to be in the business of creating a perfect world. Um, but if every, everyone truly was honest, you wouldn't need someone to check on you every time. Let's take another example of a biblical principle of stewardship. Jesus taught his disciples, his followers, to be faithful with the resources their master has entrusted to them. Do you remember the parable of the talents? The parable of the talents was told in the context of Jesus' instructions to his disciples who were waiting for his return at some unknown hour. And three servants were given a different amount of talents. And the good and faithful servants the ones who received a well done from their master were the ones who had gained more talents. How? By having put their money to work. Now that principle can be applied to our work as we use the resources we have been given in order to receive a well done from our heavenly master. Resources we've been given to steward include our time, our money, our skills, our abilities, our talents, our energy, all of these things we can steward through how we work in the workplace. It is, after all, one of the most common places for us to honor God 
by demonstrating faithful stewardship of all of our resources. And take a third example, sacrificial worship. Many people think that praising the Lord is only a Sunday thing, and glorifying Him is only when we sing out loud, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But the Bible says in Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. In other words, after everything that you have gained through all of your talents and your energy and resource, you can honor the Lord with that. And so when we see our work as a means to honor the Lord, we'll also see that the wealth we gain is another means to honor the Lord. So for us to have this Christian work ethic, you know what? We have to exercise faith. Going back to our working definition of discipleship that we began the series with, we said that discipleship we borrowed from Caesar Kalinowski's definition is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our lives. And this work ethic is a perfect place for us to apply moving from unbelief to belief in this area of our life. Discipleship, after all, is our faith in Christ, demonstrated through our life in Christ. And we have to believe, first of all, that God even exists and that He's honored by our work habits and what we produce. Because if we don't believe in God, then it doesn't matter how we behave because it doesn't matter what moral standards we might have. We have to believe not only that God exists, but that the God who exists is an omniscient God and that He sees everything, even the things that our boss doesn't see or that our customers don't see. So even if they don't ever find out, we believe that God knows and therefore it matters. And so we also have to believe that God rewards and He honors those who honor Him. And when Jesus gave instructions, they clearly appealed to our faith that our Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. So that what we do shouldn't be motivated by the praise that we might receive from men, but motivated by the honor we receive from our Heavenly Father who sees what we do in secret. So if being a disciple of Jesus Christ is learning to do all which He commanded and letting Him live His life through us, then the work that you and I do daily is certainly an area to apply all these things that He taught about truthfulness and stewardship and honoring God. So I ask today, what biblical teaching do you think you can apply in your work this week? Maybe for you, you need to be more diligent, more pleased to get up and go to work, and take pleasure in your work because it is a way for you to honor the Lord God. Maybe for you, you need to remember to bring the highest quality to the work you do to give the Lord the highest praise. Instead of only looking forward to the weekend and just doing the bare minimum and cutting a corner here or there, or even just trying to get out of having to work. Perhaps for you, you need to be more faithful with the resources that you've been entrusted with. Maybe they're material resources, maybe they're time, maybe it's energy. And maybe for you, you may have to return something that you shouldn't have taken from your employer. Or perhaps for you, you need to simply first begin by evaluating what motivates you to get up and go to work. Is it your desire to get rich? Or is it your desire to honor God with your wealth? And do a little bit of introspection first. And perhaps, maybe for you, 
your task will be to cultivate Christ's humility. Because this week, you'll be asked to do something that's well below your pay grade and your education. Whatever it is, as the Lord convicts you about it, take a moment to consider, well, what is it that I must believe? How do I have to move from unbelief in this area to belief? What do I have to believe about God or about Christ's teaching that requires this particular work ethic in my situation? Well, now that we've talked about the Christian work ethic, let's talk about the Christian rest ethic. Let me read again from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day, He rested from all His work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Do you realize that God wants His people to enjoy His rest? As Moses and God were meeting on Mount Horeb, discussing what God would do with the Israelites, Moses said to the Lord, If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied to Moses, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And when Israel finally took possession of the land that had been promised to them in Joshua chapter 21, the Bible says the Lord gave them rest on every side. And of the promises that Jesus has given us, His disciples, well, let's admit it, several of them aren't all that attractive, are they? When He promises His disciples that you will be persecuted it doesn't exactly cause everyone to say, well, count me in. Or when he says, if you would desire to follow me, you must take up your cross. Bear that burden. Be ready to suffer and come and follow me. That isn't all that attractive. I don't know about you. But one promise certainly is appealing. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the Lord God wants His people to enjoy rest, and if you look with me in Exodus chapter 20 in the giving of the commandment to observe the Sabbath, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, listen to how Moses commanded the Israelites on observing the rest day. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, set apart, different. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So remembering it involves keeping it holy or setting it apart, making sure it is different from the others. One of the most dangerous things that Christians or God's people can do is to take that which is holy, set apart, and then make it common. Whether it was objects that were in the temple or whether it's our bodies, 
When God calls it holy and sets it apart, we have to be careful not to use it as common things. And the distinction between that which was holy and common revolved around the work that was done in the six days and that that work should be avoided on the seventh day. Now, Sabbath does not mean seventh, friends. Sabbath means rest. And for the Israelites, it fell on the seventh day because that was the day that the Lord ceased from his creation and, or his work of creation and rested. And the Sabbath was to be a sign between the Lord God and his holy people of Israel. In chapter 31, verse 17 of Exodus, it says, It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. And the Lord made it holy by abstaining from the further work of creation so that his people should keep it holy and identify themselves with the Lord. Now, the Sabbath was so important to God that a violation was punishable by death. Yeah, there you go. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. But let's not forget that enjoying the Sabbath was also important to God, that not only did He give it as a gift, but with that gift comes a promise. Exodus chapter 16, verse 29, bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and that is why on the sixth day He gives you bread, the manna from heaven, for two days. God promised that if you don't collect on the seventh day, you will have enough on the sixth day to feed you on the seventh day. And he even promised, or he gave a promise with a, a Sabbath year. He gave them a year to rest every seventh year. Leviticus 25 verse 4, but in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. And then came the promise later in Leviticus chapter 25 verse 18 to 22. You can follow along if you like, but the Lord says, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. And then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? You see, that's where faith steps in. What will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? God says, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. You see, God wants us to enjoy the rest, so He'll provide if we honor Him with that rest. See, by the time that Jesus then lived among God's people, the Jewish religious leaders had so precisely defined the work prohibitions that hadn't been specified in the law, that keeping the Sabbath became burdensome. They had forgotten the whole reason for this rest day. So, for example, there were rulings by Jewish religious leaders establishing 39 different kinds of activities that could be classified as work, work that was prohibited on the Sabbath. So, for example, you couldn't sweep a dirt floor because that was like plowing. So, you can't sweep your dirt floor because it's like leveling the ground, just like you do when you are working or your field. Or, for example, you couldn't pull a heavy bench across a dirt floor because that was like trying to build a furrow. 
So you were prohibited then from moving your furniture on your dirt floor. Or planting was so defined that if you washed your hands or you spat in the grass, that was prohibited because you could be watering. And watering your fields was against, was, was work. So spitting was considered work. Or if you threw your peels onto the ground, it would constitute fertilizing the ground, and that's like trying to farm. You see how burdensome that became? But the Sabbath laws were not intended to be such a burden on God's people. There were categories for reaping and gathering and threshing and selecting and grinding and kneading and cooking and baking, that for you to observe all of those things, it was a heavy burden to, to bear. Well, Jesus lived and taught that the Sabbath laws were never intended to be burdensome or restrictive in that way. There was a time, as he walked among his own people, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of having broken the Sabbath and of his disciples of breaking the Sabbath because as they were hungry, they began to pick heads of grain to eat and satisfy their hunger. Remember that the poor could satisfy their hunger. That's why they weren't supposed to glean all the way to the edges of the field. But the Pharisees were accusing the disciples of doing something that was unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus didn't respond to them by nitpicking about the definition of work. That's what legalists do. Jesus got to the principle at issue, citing examples of the same principles in action, and he appealed to the precedent. Maybe you know some of these stories, maybe you don't, but there was an account where David and his men were hungry, and Abimelech the priest gave them the showbread, the bread that was on the altar, for them to eat to satisfy their hunger. And Jesus appealed to the actions of the priests on the Sabbath. You know, priests, they have to perform certain temple duties and temple ministries on the Sabbath for the offerings that were made every day of the week. But they are not considered as having broken the Sabbath, he argued with them. And so based on these circumstances of the hunger of the disciples, Jesus said the disciples were not guilty of having violated the intent of the Sabbath laws. And the Pharisees, too, were looking for a way to accuse Jesus himself. He had gone to the, the, um, the synagogue, and in came a man with a shriveled hand, and the Pharisees watched him closely to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus began by asking them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, how would you answer that question? What is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Easy answer, right? To save a life or to take one? Pretty easy, right? But the Pharisees couldn't answer the question, or else they refused to answer the question. And Jesus healed the man with his shriveled hand after having told a story of, or having, having um, given the parallel of, wouldn't you save your sheep if it had fallen into a hole? Of course you would. And aren't human beings more valuable than sheep? Of course they are. And so it was obvious then that they were ignoring mercy because they were eager to follow the letter of the law. And they remained silent. And in Matthew's account, you see that Jesus looked at them with anger in his eyes, deep distress over their stubbornness. He turned to the man and said, stretch out your hand and healed the man 
Now, of course, the Pharisees then convened to agree, let's, how, uh, let's figure out how we can now kill Jesus, revealing that they thought he was worthy of the death penalty for having violated the Sabbath. But you see, Jesus was getting to the heart of keeping the Sabbath laws. God desires mercy more than sacrifice. He's interested in our attitudes of the heart. He's interested in our obedience by faith. He's interested in holiness more than he is the outward performance of keeping with the letter of the law. And he says in Mark chapter 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So his behavior and his attitude toward the Sabbath is our benchmark for right behavior toward those laws. The Sabbath is a rest for the Lord's people to enjoy, and as they enjoy it, to remember the Lord's rest and enjoy His goodness. Now, I know you might be asking, but if those Sabbath laws were part of the Old Covenant, should we who are part of the New Covenant, the Christians, do we keep a Christian Sabbath? And the argument sometimes goes that of all of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in some form or other in the New Testament. The one that isn't repeated in the New Testament is the command to remember the Sabbath. So should Christians keep a Sabbath, a rest day? Well, for several reasons, I believe we should. First of all, Jesus kept the Sabbath, not according to the Pharisees' definition, but according to His definition of the Sabbath. And secondly, the people of the New Covenant, those of us who are in Christ, that is the church, we identify ourselves with the same Creator God that the Israelites did. The same God who worked in His creation for six days and then rested on the seventh day. And thirdly, Jesus made a reference to the Sabbath day in the future when He spoke of the time of the end, and that implies He didn't intend to abolish the Sabbath day. And fourthly, the Sabbath rest is a foretaste of our eternal rest. Hebrews 4, verse 9 through 10, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from us, from his. So come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. And in fact, you know, you can take just a practical reason as well. There were humanistic attempts made in prior centuries to change the weekday from six to 10 days a week, or to have people work and rest on a different balance, that they would work nine days and rest only one, the tenth day. Take the Ford Motor Company who tried that, or even the French Revolution. Both of those attempts failed. So how should we keep the Sabbath? Well, I have a few suggestions. I suggest that, like Jesus, we should be concerned with the heart of the matter, not just the outward performance of the letter of the law. And it's so sad when Christians who are given the Sabbath to enjoy, that they add all these other rules about how we can't enjoy certain things on the Sabbath, and adding some burdensome restrictions, removing all the enjoyment from the day of rest. And like everything in discipleship, our keeping of a day of rest should be an act of faith and obedience. Now, you might think, if you're running a business, that it's necessary to be open seven days of the week. Because maybe you think that that's how much income you need to survive. So it takes faith to believe that if you take a day to rest, God will provide the money that you need. You might think as an employee that it's necessary to be at your employer's disposal every day of the week. So yes, friends, it's going to take faith 
for you to believe that even if you're fired for taking a rest, that God will provide you some better employment opportunity. I believe we should set it apart from other days by devoting it to the Lord as a day of rest, and to set it apart by doing not the things that we do the six days of the week. Whatever it is that is your work or your means of income or your earning, your keep, then avoid that at least one day of the week. Now, for many Christians, it makes sense that that one day a week would be a Sunday as their Sabbath rest. Why does it make sense? Well, because that's the day that Christians celebrate the Lord's resurrection. That's how we historically moved away from a Saturday to a Sunday as a worship day. For the Jews, it was Saturday because that was the seventh day. That was the rest day. But for the Christians who celebrated the resurrection of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they gathered on the resurrection day. And Sunday became that celebration day. So if you're going to gather for celebration and meet with other Christians and fellowship with them, what a perfect opportunity to make that your rest day. But that doesn't necessarily have to apply to every Christian. I myself, for example, Sunday is a busy ministry day. So for me, I choose Monday as my day off on a regular basis, but not always. I'm not legalistic about it. And in fact, even as I preach this message, this coming week, it's going to be very different. I plan to be doing work in ministry tomorrow. But see, again, it's for you to enjoy your rest, not to add any burdens. For some, like ministers or healthcare professionals or sportsmen, perhaps selecting a different day of the week and making an effort to be consistent with that is the advisable thing to do. But whatever day you select, devote it to the Lord as a rest day and do it in faith and obedience. Remember that the Sabbath was made for man. It is God's gift to you. And as you work, remember that you're no more than three days away from a day of rest, either behind you or ahead of you. You physically need a rest day to function properly and remain healthy. And every gift, if this is a gift from the Lord, don't you think we should open it up? and enjoy it? I mean, what good is a gift if it just stands there wrapped the whole time? Never opened, never enjoyed. And God miraculously preserved the six-day manna. He promised to provide a miraculous sixth year of harvest. So honor God, and He will honor your commitment and obedience and faith. You know, as I think of many ministers, sometimes when you ask them, when is your day of rest? They say, well, I don't really take a day of rest as though that were more godly than someone who says, well, I take Tuesday as my day of rest, or I take Friday as my day of rest. Again, it's that whole thing of busyness is next to godliness. Well, I disagree, and praise God that by His grace, I have not yet experienced ministry burnout. I've taken some of the advice of other ministers who've gone before me to make sure that you observe a rest day and to enjoy that rest. And thankfully, too, I serve a church, FIBC, who has seen fit that every seven years of ministry, I'm given a Sabbath rest of eight to nine weeks or whatever we agree with the council. And I just came off of that Sabbath rest, and I can tell you, I did enjoy that very much, stepping away from all other ministry responsibilities that I normally am involved with and in just enjoying a rest. So let me review as I close. The Christian work ethic, work ethic be diligent to work and make it a means to honor the living God. The Christian rest ethic, set aside at least one day in every seven to rest and to honor God by enjoying the gift and experience His promise being fulfilled as you exercise faith.
The Lord is a God who works and rests. So the disciple of Jesus Christ will live out his faith through his work and rest and will exercise his faith when he keeps the right work and rest balance. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.